Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. Welcome to Dialed In. I'm Tom Brenneman. We thank, as always, the Believe Network and our producer engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work on this show each and every week. Uh, we're back into the world of sports this week after having uh, our daughter, Ella, who just graduated from high school a couple of weeks ago. And now we're back at it into the sports world. Th- this guy I met as a uh, local TV reporter um, for the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati going all the way back to 1986. And when he burst on the scene, I don't know if there's ever been a player that for about a four or five year stretch was a more exciting player than Eric Davis. Came up with the Reds. He had a season where he hit more than 30 home runs and stole 80 bases in the same year. He's one of two players to ever do that, he and Ricky Henderson. But then injuries, about with colon cancer, and he continued to play and come back over and over and over again. He's an amazing guy, and looking forward to catching up with him today. You are dialed in with Eric Davis. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details. Or, for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Eric Keith Davis was born in Los Angeles in May of 1962, one of three children to Jimmy and Shirley Davis. He grew up both as a baseball and basketball star at Fremont High School. As a senior, he hit 635, if you can believe this, in 15 games, stole 50 bases. Never heard anything like that in my life. In basketball, he averaged 29 points and 11 assists per game. His goal was to play in the NBA. Instead, Eric Davis was drafted in the eighth round, the 200th overall pick of the 1980 draft by the Cincinnati Reds. His childhood friend, longtime friend, Daryl Strawberry, was the number one pick overall in that draft. By 84, Eric Davis was in the big leagues. In 86, he had 27 home runs and stole 80 bases. He's one of two players ever, ever to hit 20 or more home runs and steal 80 or more bases in the same year. 
From 86 to 91, Davis averaged 30 home runs and 40 stolen bases per season. He was truly one of the most exciting players of his generation, if not of all time. One of his most famous moments came when he homered off Dave Stewart in his first World Series at bat in 1990. His Reds would sweep the Athletics that year. But in Game 4, while diving for a ball, he lacerated a kidney, which required surgery. Injuries would sabotage Davis during stops in Los Angeles, Detroit, but in 96, back to Cincinnati, another great year. 287, 26 home runs. A year later, in May of 97, Eric Davis was diagnosed with colon cancer. This is in May. By September, he hits a game-winning home run in the American League Championship Series for Baltimore and was named the winner of the Roberto Clemente Award. He's a two-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove winner, a Cincinnati Reds Hall of Famer. Most importantly, he and his wife Sherry have been married since 1987, and they are the proud parents of two daughters. Eric Davis, did I um, miss anything that I should have had on there that perhaps you're most proud of? No, but what I can tell you, though, Tiz, I'm going to have to cut you a check. That was a great introduction. <laughs> that was one of my best ones. I think the only one I might have beat you was Wayne Boxmiller when I got inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame. Because his introduction to me, he said you can spell Cincinnati without ED, but you can't spell Reds without ED. And so that climaxed that whole thing. But you was right there, man. I'm going to cut you a check. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to cut you one. Well, believe me, I don't have a job. So if you want to send any kind of check, you're more than welcome to send it my way. You know, Eric, I couldn't believe it when I I was getting ready for this thing. And and, and I'd made a comment before we went on the air that – I met you for the first time in uh, 1986. I was right out of college and, and covering the Reds and down in the clubhouse every day. And, you know, I've always said of all the guys that I had a chance to be around, no one treated a young guy just trying to find his way better than you did me. And when I saw you just turn 59 years old a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't believe it. I did. <laughs> Whether you want to believe it or not, I did. But, uh, but but you know what though, Tom? That when I first saw you, you was a uh, a a a kid that came from a a a background of sports journalist and and, and uh, doing games and broadcasting. Your dad, one of the most legendary announcers in the world, uh, for a long period of time, and and just your intellect on 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 coming to the clubhouse, you didn't portray. That was my dad. You portrayed that I have to make my own mark and I'm moving forward in the best way that I know how. And it was easy to to allow you to gravitate into my space because of your uniqueness and your desire to be an individual and not the son of a great announcer. So that was easy for me. Well, I, I can never repay you and thank you enough. I want to turn back the clock, Eric, to, to when you're growing up. And, you know, for a lot of kids today, I mean, the divorce rate is through the roof. It's up over 50%, I think. And yet, when you're a kid growing up in Los Angeles, you've got your mom and dad there in your life every single day. Is there any way now as you're able to look back, and you've been married to your wife since 1987, I mean, is there any way to look back and, and, and realize what an incredible blessing that was? Now, in retrospect, you can say that. I mean, every every kid that has grown up has a story to tell, whether the parents were there or they weren't there, whether they was abusive while they was there, uh, and a lot of different things that transpires over the course of a kid growing. But 
in the heat of that, that's all you see. You don't know that it's not supposed to be any better parts, particularly. Um, but hindsight is always twenty-two, and to reflect back on on the way my parents were, I I, I was upset a lot of times because I was the baby, mm-hmm. you know. So you think that that you're being treated differently and, and having an older brother and an older sister, so you think you're treated differently. But when I look back at, at it now and and see how how much my parents gave uh, to us and how much my father committed to to his family. My father worked three jobs to make sure that my mother and us we wasn't poor, but we didn't want for anything either. But but it was one of those things that that. Now you see why kids do what they do, good or bad. Uh, there's been some great kids and some great stories of, of, of kids that have grown up in poverty or or in a single parent home that went on to do great things. And there's sure. some kids that have grown up in very luxurious homes that have done some bad things. Yep. So that I've always used it as a positive to to lead by, by example based on my experiences from my childhood that would help to anybody that was doing something differently than I did. Now, when you were growing up, I mean, you, you're a great basketball player. I gave some of the numbers earlier in high school, and and really that was your first love. Is that right? Actually, football was. Oh, football. Okay. All right. Okay. I thought basketball was. Baseball was the last one. Yeah, right. I know <laughs> that much. Was the last one. Yeah, yeah. I got recruited to high school to play football. Uh, uh, Fremont High School, which was a notorious high school for baseball players at and I didn't know that until I got entrenched into the program. But we had 19 major leaguers that made it from my high school, all the way from Gene Mock to Willie Crawford to Danny Ford to Bobby Tolan to Bob Watson, setting them in disco Danny Ford, George Hedges. It's a lot of guys. And I didn't know that prior to going to Fremont High School. And and But I've always enjoyed the contact of football, and I've always enjoyed the the high-flying act of basketball. Baseball was so boring, but I still enjoyed it. Well, what made your decision then ultimately to play baseball when you get drafted by the Reds? It was easy because I just finished my baseball season. And I tell people this all the time. So had I graduated high school after basketball season, I would have went to college. Would have been no question because I was in that frame of mind. And, and, Having finished it and being all city and getting all the accolades and being drafted was a humbling experience. Um, uh, I was in the moment. And a lot of my coaches and, and family members were saying, you might not ever get this opportunity, but you will always have four years of college basketball eligibility if it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And, and so I took a, a leap of faith, and then if it didn't work out, that and it almost didn't work out uh, because of how how racially divided the game was. That even at that time, uh, the NRA's organization, uh, I was a black shortstop at that time. And you just didn't see a lot of them. It was only three, to my knowledge. It was it was Ozzie Smith, Gary Tippleton, and UL Washington, yeah. the only three black shortstops at that time. So it wasn't a prominent position for us, uh, especially me being 6'3". Uh, um, and then, whether you can believe this or not, that, that you didn't have infield instructors and and things that they have now where they took the time to tutelage you and teach you how to play the position. So if you didn't come in as a black player, especially a shortstop, 
with gifted hand hand eye coordination and foot coordination around the bag than you went to center field. If you check the records on a lot of black center fielders that was in America, we all grew up as a shortstop. Sure. And it's funny because you just didn't get the treatments. I mean, I, you know, like you said earlier, you know, hindsight is what it is. It's just so hard to believe that we had those days, but we did. I mean, even worse than that, going back to before Jackie Robinson. Um, mm-hmm. In 1984, you're in the big leagues. Um, later that year, Pete Rose becomes a manager of the Reds. What were your impressions of Pete Rose as a guy and as a manager? Uh, I didn't have an impression of him as a manager. Uh, I, I had an impression of him as, as the leader of the Big Red Machine, uh, a key clog in a very, very, very successful uh, run uh, with the Cincinnati Reds uh, on, on a team probably can still be argued as one of, one of the greatest teams of all time. Uh, playing against him in Philadelphia, playing against him in Montreal, uh, it was a godsend that he came. Uh, because our manager at that time, I was going through so much uh, as a young black player who had his own individual ideas of what he could do uh, and my own style about how I did it. Uh, I was a unique player. And, and our organization, honestly, not, was not ready for that uh, because I had two earrings in my ear and I came from Los Angeles. <laughs> so sure. we really... People might not admit that, and I know Chief Bender gave me hell a lot of times when I was in the minor leagues, and he won't admit that. Uh, but we ultimately had conversations uh, prior to him leaving the organization. But it, it was two people that really saved me, uh, and one was when Pete Rose became the player manager. He saved my career. Uh, the, the reason I say that is because he allowed me to be me. And the second one was Bob Hauser. Uh, Bob Housen saw something in me that nobody in our organization saw, and that's a fact. And I became what I became, and people will say they knew that, but if they say that, they lie. Mm-hmm. Because by, I was in Double A, and Jimmy Lett was my manager. And Bob Housen came into Waterbury, Connecticut. That was back when you didn't see the brass like that. If you saw the brass, something was wrong. Mm-hmm. They didn't come down and say hi and wave at everybody and go to lunch and do all the things, like some of the things that the guys do now, which is not bad, but you just didn't see that in, in 82 and 83. And he took me out to lunch, and he told our manager, Jimmy Led, and Jim Hoff was our, our, our field coordinator. And he actually literally told them to leave me the H alone and let me do what I do. And, and that allowed me, because everybody tried to change my style or where I hit in my hands and all of that kind of stuff. And and he really came down and told them to leave me the hell alone. And just uh, because you didn't have hitting coaches. Ted Tazuski came down one time in spring training at the Grand's Land, and he talked to us uh, for 35 minutes, and that was it. We didn't have the blessing of the coaches and 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 hitting instructors. We didn't have a hitting coach in the minor leagues and things like that. So your roommate was really your coach. You knowing yourself and having each other watch each other, and 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 shadow swinging and and the, all kind of stuff. And, and those were the things that how you got through. But what Bob did and Pete Rose did, I can tell you, I was leading off and everybody wanted me to hit the ball on the ground, on the turf at Riverfront Stadium and run like hell and steal bases. And I can remember Bunny leading off a game one time and bunting it and popped it up. 
And Pete Rose called me to, to the steps and he said, listen, he said, I know you can run and you can steal bases, but when, if, when you can hit a ball as hard as far as you do, the next time you bunt, it's $100. <laughs> and in that 84, I didn't have $100 because the minimum salary is only $32,000. Right, right, right. So it wasn't no way in hell I was going to get a bunch <laughs> of casino trying to and, and a couple weeks later, he moved me from lead off to six, and everything else is history. So those are the two people in this organization that really, really, really gave me the opportunity to show the world what my capabilities and my abilities were. Well, you go through – And I'd always be grateful. You know, you go through a 162-game stretch from June of 86 to July of 87. You hit over 300, on base percentage over 400. You hit 47 home runs. You score 149 runs. You knock in 123, and you steal 98. I mean, you know – all of this leads to the Willie Mays comparisons. I mean, Willie Mays. When, when you're this young, mid-mid, twenty-five-year-old <laughs> guy, I mean, how, I mean, seriously, how do you handle somebody saying this guy's the next Willie that. Mays? I mean, I didn't, I didn't handle that, and it was it, it was funny because two black kids from South Central Los Angeles, and I don't know if any any other black kids in the history of this game has had this path. Two black kids that was in the same draft in 1980 was compared to two of the greatest players ever at 18 years old. I was compared to Willie Mays and Daryl Strawberry who was was called the black Ted Williams. He was compared to Ted Williams. Where, how can you even even fathom that at 18 and 19 years old? Um, and I don't think it's ever 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 been put in that category. Before that or after that, and and it, it was kind of funny to me because you talking about to me arguably the greatest player ever. Uh, and when you talk about the greatness of Willie Mays, you're talking about it was nothing that he didn't start at. And I'm not saying good at; I'm saying start at. And 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 to even be mentioned. But that at 25 or 26 years old was just so – I took it as a disgrace to Willie. And and it was kind of comical to me. But it didn't really bother me uh, because I knew I, I wasn't going to be Willie Mays. I was never going to be a Willie Mays. But just the, the gall of people to yeah. put that pair on me was hilarious. In 1990, um, the World Series starts. You're going up against the mighty Oakland A's. I mean, they got Conseco and McGuire and Ricky Henders. They got all these guys that are just unbelievable players. Did your team believe, and you had a great year. You went wire to wire in your division. Uh, great LCS against the Pirates. Did you believe going into the series, can you remember, did you think you could beat them? Without a doubt. Um. Honestly, we felt Pittsburgh was a better team um, because Pittsburgh mirrored us. The only difference in us and the Pirates was our bullpen, and that's why we beat them in six games. Uh, if you look at the, the starting pitcher they had, uh, Dre Beck and Smiley and those guys, and you look at the speed and the offense that they had with Bonds, Bonilla, Sid Green, and events like, it, uh, uh, so you really look at what they had uh, mirrored us. And and the way we played the game, 
was to apply pressure regardless from a multitude of ways. And and when we got to play open, when we got past Pittsburgh, it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, now we can go in and do what we got to do. What That was a tremendous battle. But we had faced their pitchers to us were old. We had faced Dave Stewart and Mike Moore and, and all of those guys were National League pitchers. A lot of those guys were National League pitchers. So we, we knew them. They didn't know our pitchers. And our pitchers, was, to me, were far more dominant than that. Yeah, Eckersley was a single dominant reliever. But we had five, four or five dominant relievers. Yep. So if you look at the spectrum of our club, we had all-stars. We had – it was six or seven guys on our team that made the all-stars, but people don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. We had uh, 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 probably not as more home runs, but we had guys who could hit the ball out of the ballpark on a, on a relatively consistent basis. Uh, the eye catcher was just as good as their catcher. Joe Oliver was a tremendous catcher who, who could throw runners out. So if you look at the dynamic of our team – we ran more as a unit. Yep. We played better defense as a unit. So uh, we felt that we matched up against them very well because, number one, we looked at the Dodgers series in 88, and their starting pitching dominated that series. You look at the Giants series in 89, they, the, the, the Giants didn't have no pitching really that year. They beat everybody with offense. And if you look at that series, they scored six or seven runs a game against them in earthquake series. They just didn't have nobody to stop them. So we had the mixture of, of the Giants and the Dodgers because we had the offense of the Giants and the pitching of, of the Dodgers. And you put those two in, 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 uh, ingredients together, and what you cooked up was a four-game sweep. When you hit that home run, though, Eric, in the first inning, your first World Series at bat off Dave Stewart. Now, look, you guys believed all those things, but there were a lot of other people out there, fans, media, you know how that goes. They, they, they thought the A's are going to steamroll through this thing. Did, did, you, did, you, did you sense any difference at all? And you just explained that you guys were confident going into the series. But when you came back into the dugout after that home run, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, boy, game on, series on. Did you sense that? We sensed that the first inning uh, on defense, the way Riho went through them. So that really started it, Pete. But when Riho went through it then, we was like, oh, shit, they're in trouble because he got his slot. Because <laughs> he was like, dot, 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 dot. And as much of the, of the steam and the engine that the home run got us, what people say it led to, if Jose Rio comes out and gives up three runs or two runs, the homer means nothing. It doesn't take the same. So, yeah, I've never taken it, okay, yeah, this was the blow and it knocked him out. Watch the game that Rio pitched. It was phenomenal. Yeah, he was. And, and it allowed us to continuously to add on. But, yeah, it, 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 it stirred the pot. But if Rio doesn't do what he do, the food is overcooked, and now we're trying to get something else going. So it was a a, a blow that let them know that they wasn't as mighty as they thought they was, absolutely. But Jose Rio showed them that they wasn't as, as mighty as they wanted more than I did. You were not on the field um, when you completed the four-game sweep. Uh, earlier in that game, you go to make a diving play, and it turns out to be a lacerated kidney. Um, yeah. 
you know, after that injury and you do all the things that you have to do to come back, and I think you also had, if I'm not mistaken, during that offseason, they cleaned up a knee, so you had surgery on the knee. Now, do you feel like that that kidney injury had an effect on you more moving forward physically the rest of your career at all? Not the rest of my career, uh, but all the way until I retired or or chose not to play after the strike in 94. Um, because I didn't play in 95. I was just physically and emotionally beat up. Um, the kidney injury took a lot from me. And, and I wasn't surprised of it because the doctors told me that. The doctors told me it was going to be between 16 and 22 months before I was even close to healing, where where just the the, the healing process and my body would have got back to normal. I came back after three months. I didn't get any rehab. I didn't do it. I, I stopped the urinating blood February the 15th and camp opened February the 18th, and I was in camp. Uh, Excuse me, Plant City. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't get anything. I didn't do a sit up. I didn't do a back thing because I couldn't do anything. While I still every every test I took, there was still blood in my urine. Mm. And I came back and I started the season on time with nothing. And I wasn't two hundred and twenty pounds. And I was one hundred and eighty pounds soaking wet. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't really have that to give. You know what I mean? Sure. So, so going through that, and and it was probably my own ego uh, from 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 wanting to play number one, of number two, and not no. I don't think anybody knew the severity of a kidney injury, nineteen ninety one. Honestly, I don't. I, we had one trainer, Larry Starr, who did everything. I don't think he was prepared. I don't think baseball was prepared for a kidney injury. Mm-hmm. We didn't have. Um, uh, the medicine and the and the rehab stuff that they have today, we didn't have that. So I don't blame Larry. I blame the organization for not believing me when I said something was wrong. Um, that was the problem. But trying to play, that was just my, as the leader of my club, how could I not try? Mm-hmm. So, so, but they didn't protect me as, as much as I gave to, that organization, they didn't protect me against myself. And that was disappointing. Ultimately, in uh, 96, uh, you go back to L.A. You know, when I was wrestling with the idea of leaving the Arizona Diamondbacks and coming back to my hometown, uh, yours is L.A., mine's Cincinnati, and I had a really smart guy, Jeff Morad, who was a longtime player agent, and he was the um, president of the Diamondbacks at the time. And I'll never forget, uh-huh. he said to me, he says, you know what, going home is, is, is not a good thing. He said, I've uh-huh. seen too many players where I was their agent, where they went home, they thought it would be A, B, C, and D. And maybe A came true, B, C, and D couldn't have gone more the other way. You look back on it, was going home a good thing? Well, I didn't have a choice. Because I got traded home, I wasn't a free agent. Well, I guess the um, experience of going home, was it a good but, thing? Yeah, I wouldn't have never as a free agent went to the Dodgers because home was not for me. I knew too many people in LA, uh, uh, going away, uh, 
in the minor leagues and going away. I was I was going away from college just because of those same reasons. I was not going to be. It wasn't um, the best thing for me. Uh, the first game I ever played in Dodger Stadium, I left seventy-two tickets. Goodness gracious, seventy-two tickets. So I already knew what that was going to be like. So I bought uh, season tickets. I bought. 12 season tickets and I gave them to my parents and my family and said, this is just don't nobody call me. I don't have nothing. So <laughs> y'all figure out who rest of the relatives get these tickets and don't leave me the hell alone. Because I knew what it was going to be. I was just one of those uh, uh, guys from LA where I knew everybody and I was a part of the community. I was a part of South Central Los Angeles on a huge level. Uh, my first eight years in the league and doing so many things in that city. It was going to be a problem, but it it, it it wasn't a problem that I couldn't handle. It was a problem that I didn't want to handle. Right. Because the game was the, the, the most important thing for me. So, no, I wouldn't have went there at, at all. And, and it wasn't because of the organization, because I loved the Dodgers when mm-hmm. I was a kid. But but just for the, the off-the-field thing, not even close. Never would have done it. All right, so now we move forward to 1997. Um it's it's spring training early in the year. You're now with the Baltimore Orioles. Um, and walk me through what happens when you start to, to, to take these tests because something clearly is not right in your body and you're ultimately told you have colon cancer. Well, I'm going to take you to step before that. Um, in May, I probably was hitting 390. Uh, I was leading the league. I was playing exceptionally well. I was coming off a comeback thirty year award in the ninety six, and I was playing excellent baseball. The city of Baltimore embraced me, and we were in Cleveland, and I scored a run, and I had a semi collision, slid in, and then the catcher made some contact and stuff. So you know the bunch of bruises. So I scored, and I got ready to get up after the third out. And the pain hit me. That's when I first knew something was wrong. But it was the pain. I'm, I'm thinking it was from the, the collision. Sure. I am something okay. My back was tight or something. I pulled something in my side. So they take me out of the game and I go back. I play the next day. They give me medicine, pain or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I play the next day. And I'm still having some little pain, but I'm just thinking it's leftovers from just a collision. So we leave Cleveland. We go to New York uh, for late, uh, for Memorial Day, and we play a day game, and I play in that game. And after that game, I went home, back to the hotel, excuse me, and I'm in so much pain, I'm just balled up on the couch. So I call the trainer. They put me on the train because uh, that was the quickest way to get me from New York back to Baltimore. So they put me on the train and the paramedics pick me up from the train and take me to the University of Maryland Hospital where they, they take all kind of tests and they uh, told me I had an abscess in, in, in my stomach. And so I don't know where an abscess is and I'm asking them how, how did it get there and nobody can tell me. So the chief of staff come down and they take in all of these tests and they tell me uh that this is what it is. And they actually put a catheter in my stomach and tried to drain it overnight, which I couldn't find out could have been a death thing. 
if if some of the cancer would have that you know now would have leaked out and got to my other organs, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't even be here. So they say that it's 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 shrinking and my vitals are improving. They wanted to release me to go back and talk after eight days in the hospital. But thank God I had a business partner that was from D.C., and she told me, she said, Eric, you need to go to John Hopkins and let them check The University of Maryland Hospital is okay, but it's not the best hospital. So I called um, our general manager and told him I wanted a second opinion. And he was like, no problem. Where you want to go? I said, I want to go to John Hopkins. So that was, say, that was just like a Wednesday I check out the University of Maryland. I go to John Hopkins. He asked me what's going on. I tell him the first test he did was a colonoscopy. Now I'm in this hospital for eight days. Wow. And I done one. Wow. The first test he took was a colonoscopy. He said, you got a tumor the size of a grapefruit. And I said, okay. So that was, I, I, I honestly, I was relieved. I, I was not scared. I was not nervous. It didn't shock me. It didn't do anything. Because for the first time in nine days, I was told what the problem was. And so he said, we got to go in and and, and get this surgery. And I was like, okay, when are we going to do it? He said, I was like, when are we going to do it? He said, Friday. Because I wanted to wait for my wife and my mother to get into town. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do it the next day. So Friday, he said, you want to do it Friday? I said, yeah. He said, and then I said, why? He said, because it's Friday the 13th. And I was like, dude, Jason is a movie, man. I don't give a damn about Friday. There was my exact words. And my, actually, my doctor just started laughing. I said, man, Jason, that's a movie. And I had surgery Friday the 13th. And he took a, a, a tumor the size of a grapefruit out of my colon. Now you and know- I took 36 weeks of... Of chemo, and I came back in September. Well, uh, and I was getting to that. I mean, now you go through the chemo um, and all that comes with that. There are a lot of people listening that know exactly what that's all about, whether they had to go through it or a family member goes through it, and God forbid anybody has to go through it. But, but, but now, here you are again in the American League Championship Series. You hit a game-winning home run. And, I mean, it, how in the world does that happen that fast? I mean, it's got to be more than just physical, right? I'd I'd write a book. It it, it was all mental. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be a lot more than than physical. It was nothing preventing me from playing. Um, It was nothing. I couldn't hurt my my, my colon. What I was going to do to my colon, I couldn't hurt it. It wasn't bruised. Uh, The damaged part, they removed. So it was a matter of me getting back into baseball shape. Uh, the chemo was such a, a drain on me, but I was so blessed because Eric Anthony, my teammate's wife, um, was an herbalist. And and she brewed me, like, cheese and stuff that I drank while I was taking chemo. And I actually ate while I was taking chemo. So I never got sick from the chemo. And I drank this tea that she made me, I drunk it three times a day. And then what it does is it replenishes all of the, 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 the nutrients that the body has in it that the chemo 
burns out because, you know, chemo ain't never poison. And it repented that, so I never got sick. I never regurgitated. I never did all those things that chemo made you do. So I would be down for maybe a day, and the next day it was like I'd never taken it. That's why, if you notice, all the way when I came back to play, I never played the day I took chemo, but I played the next day. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the schedule that I was on during the playoffs because I was still taking chemo. So it didn't really bother me, but it was just more mental than anything. And, and, and I'm a firm believer that there's strength in prayer. And, and there were so many people that was praying for me, but I had to, even though you have a lot of people praying for you, you have to pray for yourself sure. and you have to allow self not to be caught up in the things that were happening. And, and the whys and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was able to free my mind and allow me to perform. I want to ask you about another thing here, that, that, that of all the time that I've known you, and it's going back over 35 years now, which is hard to believe, but, you know, one of the things that, that there, there are a lot of people in this world, Eric, that are stutterers. Uh -huh. you, you stuttered a lot as a young person. I remember interviewing you when you first came to the big leagues, but you never shied away from it. I don't know right. what you did, and I guess that's what I'm asking you for, for any advice to some young people out there because now you sit here and you do an interview with me for 40 minutes, and, I mean, there's no sign of it anymore. But, 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 well, but that it, had to be it, it tough, tough, right? It was tough if you, if you um, looked at it as being tough. And all stuttering is is trying to talk before you think. That's all it is. You haven't processed the words that you want to say, but you want to say it before you process it. That's all stuttering is. And if you listen to Bo Jackson, who stuttered, and Ron Harper, who stuttered, and a lot of guys who stuttered, they said the main th the thing that really got them through it was you you listen to the question and you take your time to answer. And people who stutter and they've gotten through it, when you talk to them and think about when you hear Bo Jackson talk, there's a calmness to Bo. Yep. There is no rushing. But most people who do interviews rush and talk really, really, really fast and want to get everything going because they don't have a problem putting their words together and having it as they matriculate out their mouth. But when you stutter, you want to talk before your words have formulated in your brain and all my mother used to constantly tell me was stop think and speak and and what really got me was when i learned how to talk to the media because i learned how to listen to the whole question and then speak and that changed the urgency to speak because most people that do an interview have their mind made up when they hear one part of what you say as a question and they want to answer that and not listen to the whole question. That's why people get stumped when they talk to the media because they hear what they want to hear and they want to answer that. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when you stutter. You're working in the Reds organization now. Have you had in the past, do you have currently any aspirations to be a major league manager? Because I, 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 I no. really believe you would be the ideal guy to be a manager. I would probably say 10 years ago, yes, but at 59, absolutely not. Okay. Um, All right. It's, it's, and I don't know 
if this is a fact, but just from watching and being around it, it's 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 too much. It's too much to be a manager. It's not just about getting your players to trust you and getting your players to um, believe in in the in the in you and your coaching staffs. Uh, ideas about how we're going to perform and how we're going to attack every game. Managing is, is in today's game, just from looking at it, is so much more. There's so much, there's so many people to appease. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, I believe me. I know what you're saying. I know, I know exactly you have what you're to saying. Answer. You have to talk. You have to. It's, it's mandatory that you talk before the game. It's mandatory that you talk after the game. Everybody is a conversational piece. Everybody is an opinionist, and everybody is an opportunist to figure out why you're doing what you're doing or why the team is the way that it is. Uh, and, and, and for me, that's too much. It's not about the, the way you talk. Or when you watch the game, it's not about the game. And that's the problem with our game. Our game is about everything but baseball. And I'm going to tell you this. When you look at our game, it's about health and performance. It's about analytics. It's about um, nutrition. It's about wellness. It's about strength and conditioning. It's about data. It's about information. Um, It's about exercise. It's about body. It's about everything. And the most important thing of why we're all here, T, is the game. Yep. And that's the last thing people talk about every single day. Yep. And, and that's why I think that baseball, has, it, 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 there are major issues in baseball, and you didn't even cover the part about the money and the CBA and all that that's coming, but that's for another time no. and another place. I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's hard to watch for a sport that, that you grew up your entire life. You did, I did, so many others did. Um, loving the game and being able to enjoy watching a game. And, and now all of a sudden there's just so much else going on. i got to ask you before you leave. It's, it's, Go it's, ahead. I, I want to hear what you have to and, say about this. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something, though, just before we go. All of those things are, are important. Sure. But they're not more important than the game. All of the things that I named should enhance the game. Right now, all of those things are trying to lead the game. Mm-hmm. And you can't lead with that. The game, baseball has to be the forefront of where the game is and where it will go. Information, we've always had information. We've always talked about wellness. You've always talked about health. Data is not new. We've always had scouting reports. We've had all of those things. But now when you're trying to make that lead, you can't do it. That's the problem. Before I let you go, I always like to ask uh, those of you that are kind enough to join this show. And, and I mean, you and I used to uh, rib each other back and forth all the time about one of your daughters, right. Erica, growing up, beautiful young girl. But, I mm-hmm. mean, two girls that, that have just – they've done, yeah, we laugh about that now. I mean, we're able to laugh about right. it now. Um, but, you know, being a dad, being a husband – I mean, look, everybody has different situations. Uh, you know, my folks were split up, living with my mom, working two and three jobs. Yeah, your dad was a couple of miles away, but it's not the same. But, you know, right. y- you look at, 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 at the example that you are to so many on so many levels. And, and, and in my opinion, athletics is, is 
third, fourth, fifth, seventh down the, 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 the totem pole. I mean, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a community guy, giving back and trying to help other people. I mean, it's been an amazing journey for Eric Davis. It's been huge. Um, and, and it was something that my parents always instilled in me. It's not how you start, but how you finish. And, and the number one thing that I've never really bought into, T, was that I'm a superstar baseball player. I've never bought into that because that's not who I am. That's just what I did. And, and retiring made me realize the importance of family. Because this is what happens as a baseball player or football player or basketball player is you spend most of your time away. You come home for 10 days, you're gone for 12, you're back here. So just when your family got on your nerves, you went on a road trip. <laughs> as soon as you got tired of you came home. So there was always that jockey. But when I retired, it was the first time that I've ever had to deal with my wife and my kids every single day. Yeah. And that's when you find out what parenting is all about. That's what you find out what marriage is all about. It's not about the glitz and the glamour and can I buy this car and shop over here and, and the big house and all that kind of stuff. All of that's irrelevant in a form of whether or not you can relate to the person that you chose to live the rest of your life with. Mm-hmm. And you find more of the difficult situations because now – I was removed from that limelight. I was removed from making millions of dollars. I was moved into another segment in my life. And is that important to your spouse? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is. So just learning how to deal with with my family, that's why people who work, two people in a house that work a nine to five and stay married for 40 years, are the, are the grit and the grime of what marriage is all about. Mm-hmm. Because you see somebody, to wake up with somebody every day is the hardest thing in the world when you weren't used to doing that. And most athletes, you come and go and you're happy and you're doing all these type of things. But it taught me uh, uh, that it wasn't always about me. It, it taught me that my girls was the most important thing and to watch them matriculate into into. Um, young womanhood and then to grow on and then to find my own identity after that on where I wanted to be as a, as a former competitive athlete, where did I want to gravitate to? Um, that was difficult, but, but just knowing that, that there was an opportunity for me to, to continuously broaden my shoulders and, and, and have my family support that was the most important thing. You're an amazing man, Eric Davis. Um, I, I, I just have always loved you. I think the world of you. And, um, and it was incredible watching you play, but it's been more incredible watching who you were when you took that uniform off. I can't thank you enough for, for being a part of the program today. This was awesome. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, brother. Love you too. Continue the session. Get back in the game, man. Got pulling for you. All righty, buddy. Thank you, Eric Davis. Kind All enough right, to join us. I, I've, we've had a couple of shows already. Maybe the Joe Buck show more than anybody. Where you know I've had people come up to me and they said, "Man, you know, I mean, I saw a guy on TV. 
know, maybe wasn't sure about this, 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 and this, and then you hear him on the show, and you're like, boy, Joe Buck's a good dude. Good dude. And, you know, whether you, you, you were a fan of Eric Davis, you weren't a fan of Eric Davis, whether you knew anything about Eric Davis, know nothing about Eric Davis, know nothing about the baseball player Eric Davis, I think you can sit there and listen to that program and that podcast, and I sure hope you're walking away with the same feeling I am. I've known a guy forever, and we talked about some things today that I've never heard him talk about. This was really cool. Again, we thank uh, Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer, and you are dialed in with Tom Brenneman. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.